talking about this uh, whole subject of being disciples. <clears throat> and so as, as the Romania team got ready to leave a little over a week ago, we all met outside on the alleyway before they got in their cars. And uh, Ronnie says, hey, before anybody gets in the car, I want you to show me your passport. <clears throat> I, I want to see the passport. Don't tell me you have it. I want to see it. And so before they got in the cars, they, they all pulled out their passports. Because without their passport, their proof of identity, they're going anywhere, right? And worse, if they happened to get there, they wouldn't come home. <laughs> because we wouldn't be letting them back in the country. But they need to prove their identity and show their proof of identity as U.S. citizens. And I want to start this morning by reminding you and I that our identity is really, really important. Here's what I mean. Our identity shows who we are, but it also will say what we do. So play along with me for a minute. If I was to say LeBron James, you would say he's a basketball player, right? So if I was to say Tiger Woods, you would say, you can participate Tiger Woods in golf, right? If I was to say Abraham Lincoln, you would say president. If I was to say disciple, you would say, uh, not quite as confident this morning. And that's where I want to take us because our identity in Christ is so key. One of the things that uh, any Christian must come to grips with is our identity in Christ. Identity matters for us. And true disciples have understood and grounded their identity solely, as Scott said, in Christ. Misplaced identity in your spiritual life is going to bring a lot of confusion if you haven't settled that. Misplaced identity will bring a lot of confusion. So this morning, we're going to dig into what's called the Great Commission. But before we get there, in order for you to truly understand what Jesus is asking, no, not asking, telling you to do, you need to make sure you understand your identity because if you get that, this will make sense to you. Let me run a few verses by you to help you understand what I mean when I say identity. John chapter 1, verse 12, says this, But to all, who he, uh, all whom did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then finally, 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as if God was making his appeal through us. You understand where I'm trying to go this morning is that understanding who we are in our identity will lead us to what we're supposed to do. And if you don't get that right, you're going to have a lot of questions as we go through our lesson this morning. 
Jesus proclaimed that a true disciple understands that they're adopted children. He's saying a true believer in Christ becomes a son or a daughter. You're a son or a daughter if you've placed your faith in Christ. You've been adopted in. You're a new creation. The old is gone. And a correct view of our identity then will lead us to a correct understanding of what our passions and our priorities in life are supposed to be. It's what we're supposed to do comes from who we are. Now you get that backwards and it will make no sense. But how easy it is to try and do what we're supposed to do without understanding who we are. Understand? All right. It's one of those mornings, Scott. Okay. If, uh, what's that? One. Thank you. Okay. Back on track. So who we are determines what we do. We want to make sure we don't get that out of order or misunderstand. So I want to remind you of the things that we do in service to God this morning must come from the love we have in him. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.14. Paul writes, the love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ compels us in another version. The love of Christ, not the acts of service, not the things you think you have to do, but the love of Christ is what compels us, controls us to do the things that God asked us to do. Last part of the message last week, I just hit briefly talking about the great commandment, and that sets the stage for this week's study. We're not only to love the Lord our God with all our heart, the second piece says we're to love who? People. Again, the love of God compels or controls us so that we do the things that God asks us to do. So this week, in a few moments, we're going to read what Jesus speaks to his disciples the final times he meets with them. And he says, here's the thing I want you to do. How many of you would like to know the thing you're supposed to do? I mean, I would like to know the thing I'm supposed to do with my life, with my passions, with my priorities. It's how we love people. It's the way we carry this out that Jesus is going to speak to this group this morning. And I, I say right up front, the thing we are supposed to do if our identity is secured is to live a lifestyle of disciple-making. That's it. To live a lifestyle of disciple-making. Think through this. Jesus spent three and a half years, three and a half years, training up a group of his followers to do what he did and to do it the way he did it. Three and a half years. He invested in them. He trained them up so that when he would leave, he would hand off this, what you're supposed to do, in such a way that they would understand it. And so for three and a half years, he would teach them and train them to do the very things he did. 
They would watch where he went. They would watch how he interacted with people. They would watch how he prayed. They would watch how he worshiped the Father. They would watch how he interacted with people. So in today's passage, we see Jesus meeting for the final time with his followers to hand off the thing they were supposed to do. Now, this wasn't the first time they would hear this. As a matter of fact, previous to this, after Jesus' resurrection, uh, there's the first time he has an encounter with all of the disciples corporately. Now, he had met with some individually, but this is the first time that he meets with them corporately. In, it's found in John chapter 20, verse 21. And it says this, Jesus comes into the room and says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. That's it. I mean, think about this for a minute. Is that not a strange thing to have Jesus say? I mean, they just seen Jesus crucified. Some have interacted. And of all the things Jesus might say, I would have thought it would have been something like, hey, you guys got to be really confused. I bet you have a lot of questions you would like to ask me. I bet you're just wondering what's next. And Jesus just busts in and say, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. That's it. Go do it. No debate. No option. It wasn't the great suggestion that he'd be handing off in Matthew 28 that we're going to read. It wasn't the great option. It was going to be called the Great, Great Commission. And so think about that for a minute with me. Three and a half years, Jesus training disciples in the way he lived life. And then he hands it off. What was plan B if they say no? What's the backup plan? There's no backup plan. That's kind of crazy, Jesus, right? No plan B? What if they decide, no, I don't think we want to do this. No, there was something about the way Jesus had walked with them and taught them and helped them establish their identity that would lead to what they would do. And so there's no plan B for our church and uh, the Christian life today. But there seems to be when you look around. Listen to some of these statistics. 80% of evangelical Christians, and this is a somewhat recent survey, were asked what the primary purpose of the church is. The, The primary purpose of the church. Here's the answer they gave. Fellowship. The primary purpose of the church is for fellowship. It's for me and my family and what we need. 80% of churches are plateaued or declining in the United States. 80% of communities are unchurched. And you say, ah, that can't be true. Pay attention to your street when you leave next Sunday to come worship. Three to 4,000 churches a year close in the United States. One opens for every three to four that close. Less than 50% of churches in the United States saw one new person become a Christian. I think something's wrong. I think we've taken the words of Christ and interpreted them as 
the great option, the great suggestion. I'm going to say this morning, if you truly understand your identity, what Jesus is going to ask and command in a moment makes total sense. Is, is it possible we've not helped people identify and establish their identity in Christ? You see, I think the church might have lost its way and we haven't helped people have the right identity. Many become focused on making church attenders. Some have developed programs and events to draw people, but in doing so, they just make them consumers of religious things. They, they teach them to come feast at the religious buffet that they'll lay out for them every week. And in doing so, they truly don't get rooted and established in their identity in Christ. Some people jump from church to church then just so that they can get a better offering. What's going to be best for me? And when that happens, people begin to think, I got to go somewhere where I get what I want instead of going somewhere where I'm properly taught and sent. And don't get me wrong, if you're here this morning, there are valid reasons to move from one church to another. Some would be doctrine. If the doctrine's off, if the doctrine's not correct, then certainly you need to move and get plugged in where you're taught properly from God's Word. Another would be uh, the gospel. If the gospel's not at the center, if the gospel's not driving everything you do, that would be a valid reason. But let me add one extra, and that is this. If you're not properly taught and directed to live a lifestyle of making disciples, then you need to go somewhere that is. So this morning, we're going to continue to unpack this whole thought of what it means to be a disciple. We have to guard against asking the question, and you know, substance is only a few years old, and as elders, we've had many approach us and uh, have suggestions for different ways we can do ministry, which is always good. But, but it almost always leads us to them, if we do this, can we get more people to come? And again, that's the wrong question. What do we have to do to get more people to come to church is the wrong question. What do we need to do in our own life to go into our communities and take Christ and introduce people to Christ and help people be firm in their identity in Christ. Today's passage is not just found in Matthew. If you've been in church before, you've probably heard Matthew 28, 16 through 20, which we'll look at in a moment, the Great Commission. You might have heard it preached at uh, <clears throat> missions conferences and those kind of things. And I'm going to say this morning, I want to really broaden your view of this passage. But this passage is also found in different forms in Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. God has something he wants to say to those who believe in him. So if you've got your Bible or your iPhone or whatever mechanism you have your scriptures on, let's read together Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, 
but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is it, the final meeting place that Jesus would hand off his mission He would hand off the thing he expects his followers to do. Well, this was a predetermined place. You say, we don't know what mountain. That's true. But they did, obviously. Matthew chapter 26, verse 32, Jesus said, After I'm raised up, I'll go before you into Galilee. And I'll go to a place and I'll call you to myself. This mountain, although not named, obviously had to be a place in which they knew about and maybe had spent time with Jesus. So in some ways, as they go to this place in Galilee, Jesus is saying, who's in? I told you to meet me here. You know it's time to come meet me. Let's see who's in. Let's see who's going to show up. Why Galilee? Wow, of all the different places, and if you know a little bit about this region, you've got the south, which is Judea, and that's where Jerusalem is, the hub of the Jewish faith, right? The hub of where all the people that, uh, you know, really were opposed to Jesus would worship. You have the middle piece, which is Samaria. You have the top piece, which is Galilee. Jesus spends an awful lot of time traveling between Galilee and Judea. And he does so because he's trying to communicate to his disciples, those who are following him, that all people are to be included in this faith that I'm proclaiming. That the gospel isn't just for the Jewish nation. The gospel isn't just for a certain class of people. The gospel is for everybody. And so he spends a lot of time in Galilee with people who are not Jewish. They're Gentiles. And I think this is significant. I think going up to a mountain in Galilee, I just wonder if Jesus isn't saying, hey, look around. Don't forget where I took you. You see, this morning, the Great Commission that Jesus hands off in this, in this time that he meets with them is so applicable to us. It's not like Mission Impossible. It's not like, actually I like those movies, but it's not like that when, when uh, Ethan gets his uh, phone call or whatever and he says, if you decide to take this mission, it's not like that. Jesus said, go to this place, I'm going to tell you, in Galilee, up on the mountain, and I'm going to tell you something to go and do. And the question is, for us as well as them, are we willing to show up? And if your identity is in Christ, the answer has to be yes. Here's the big idea that I don't want you to lose sight of this morning, of this whole passage. All who have been rescued and restored by Jesus are expected to be carriers of the same good news to their world. Everybody who has been rescued and restored by Jesus to God 
are expected to be carriers of that same good news to the world. You and I, those of us who have our identity in Christ. Now, if we say yes to this without understanding the great commandment that we talked about last week, loving God with everything we have and loving people the way God does, you leave that piece of the equation out Trying to do this is simply going to be a legalistic activity for you. I better go do this so that God's happy with me because he told me to do it. And if you get into this legalistic mindset, trying to carry this out will be void of worship and joy in your life. It will be something you dislike instead of something you say yes to. So let's look at the verses a little closer. First, I want you to notice, who did Jesus give this command to and why? Those present were followers of Christ that showed up. And who gives the command? The risen Christ. The Christ who has all authority. You see, the first thing they did, those who showed up, was what? What's the verse say? They worshipped him. They were there because they loved him. They were there because they knew he was worthy to be worshipped, and he has all authority. Look at the love and the devotion by those who show up. Why would they do that? Why would they do that? Why would you say yes to what Jesus teaches in this verse what has to come from an understanding of who Jesus is. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 22. We'll give you a quick run-through of who this Jesus is that shows up and commands people to go do what he says. Verse 13, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. You see, I think the followers that showed up understood this. They said, I'm worshiping Jesus, and I'm going to say yes because of who he is. He has the right, and he has the authority to tell us what to do. Does that rub you a little wrong this morning? I don't think anybody tell me what to do. He has the right and he has the authority. 
to tell us what he expects us to do. Christ is king over his kingdom. He has the authority to give the command and the authority to expect us to carry it out. Well, that's who gives the command. Well, who received this command? Well, it's more than the 11 disciples. It's just not 11 who show up. Matter of fact, we don't know exactly how many, but most uh, folks believe that the verses out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says more than 500 appeared at once, refers to when Jesus gives this command. So, Here's the disciples Jesus has been gathering. How many? We don't know exactly, but it's a larger number than maybe what you would have thought. Part of the reason I think we can assume this is the text says some doubted. The disciples, the 11, had been with Jesus multiple times by now. I don't know that there would be much they would have doubted. What if I could tell you this morning exactly what God's will for your life is? Would you jump at that? Many wonder, what's God's will for my life? And I would say as you think about this group that shows up and listens to what Jesus says, you'll get a glimpse of what God's will for your life is if you filter this through this context. A lot of people wonder, should I take this job? Should I buy this house? Should I move here? Should I do this? Should I do that? And I would say if you begin to filter your life through the filter of disciple-making, you'll understand what God's will for your life is. We, we try to jump out here and say, well, I just want to know if I should do this. And maybe the point is Jesus is saying, live a mission for me making disciples, and it doesn't matter whether you're here or whether you're there. It might make you say, well, wow, I could be more effective here than there. In my years of ministry, I find that most Christians who are searching for God's purpose in their life have not understood the implications of the Great Commission for their life. What does Jesus want you to do? What is it he's asking? He's asking that we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, love people the way he loves people, and therefore we go through life looking how we can be involved in this disciple-making command. We have to be careful. It's too easy to get tripped up and think this is some kind of an academic exercise in church. Isn't it interesting when you think about the way Jesus made disciples? He didn't move to Jerusalem, establish his own synagogue, and say, hey, move down here, sit under my teaching. I'll teach you how to preach, and I'll teach you how to do Sunday school, and I'll teach you how to do all these kind of things that maybe some of us are familiar with. He didn't do that. He said, come see who I am. Follow me. Watch how I go through Samaria, the place you won't want to go. Watch how I live my life. Do it with me. Observe it. Now go do it with other people. The second point of this passage is, what am I really supposed to do? Just like when I said, if 
I gave you a name and you said basketball or golf or president and I said disciple. There was a lot of mumbling. I think we're kind of confused. One clear command that's not optional, make disciples. And I give you this definition that I like last week, but my definition of a disciple is somebody who lives with the passions and the priorities of Christ and pursues the character of Christ in their life. Someone who lives with the passions and priorities of Christ and pursues the character of Christ with their life. Now, it doesn't say make church attenders here, does it? It says go make disciples. And so we need to know and understand how Jesus made disciples and then do the same thing. So our model is to look at the life of Christ and do what he did. I would say maybe that's what trips most of us up. We become very familiar with how to live in church. Amen? Kind of know how to do church. And Jesus, I think, wants us to look at his life and watch how he did life and then have us do the same thing. Jesus' method was intentional and relational. He invited the people to come and see who he was. They spent time together with him. And a lot of that was walking time between Judea and Galilee. And so two things when you look at Jesus' life up here, there was this multiplication piece of disciple-making, which is teaching them the gospel, expecting them to go share it. Second is maturation, which is helping other people grow into Christ-likeness. So in spending time with Jesus, they were going to observe how he worshiped, how he prayed, how he used God's word, how he loved people, how he lived on mission, how he shared the good news. True disciple-making requires relationships. It requires investing in people. It can't be done in a classroom. Shepherding is challenging. It takes time and it takes effort. To understand our purpose in God's will requires believing and living that disciple-making is the central thing you and I are to be involved in. We've been handed off this mission like the disciples. We've been handed off this life-giving, life-changing good news that you can go from being separated from God and eternal death to now being a son or a daughter. Maybe, maybe we need to learn to hear this great commandment like this. Hey, Jeff, Go do what I've been doing. Do it the way that you saw me do it. Make sure you point people to me. Make sure they hear the gospel. Help them get established in their faith. Walk with them and help them. And don't forget that I'm with you always as you go do this. Look for every chance in life to invite them to find out about Jesus. Include them in your life so they can learn how to really love and live for Jesus. Instruct them in the gospel. Ignite them in their hearts so they go do the same thing with somebody else. That's the way I hear the great commandment, the great commission. 
three words from this text. He says, how do I go do this? What am I supposed to do? He says, go. This is a word with intentionality. It means as you go through life, not an event, but Jesus is saying go, and they would have heard it as, as you go through your life, be involved in disciple-making. Moms and dads, as you go through life, you're to be focused on discipling your kids. That's your call. Husbands and wives, as you go through life, you're to disciple one another. Bosses and employees, as you go to work daily, do it as a disciple and look for ways to be involved in living out disciple-making. Kids and schools and sports, make sure you're on mission for Christ, meaning discipling other people. Whatever we do, wherever we are, living life for Christ, watching for the people God is drawing to himself and then saying, I'm here, I'm ready, let's do this together. Second word is go intentionally. The next word, baptize. He said, Jesus says, part of making disciples must include baptizing. Now, we celebrate those here at Substance in our nice watering trough, if you've been here with us. We think that's important. We celebrate baptism because it's commanded, and it's important not only for those being baptized, but for our own faith, isn't it? Baptism shows a person is now identified with Christ. They're dead in their sins, they're alive in Christ, uh, their life now dedicated and devoted to Jesus, and they're publicly proclaiming that. But there's a second piece to baptizing that I think Jesus was getting at. is helping a person become enfolded into this new body they're now a part of. It means to help people build their identity, to identify with the work and cause of Christ, and helping one another be rooted and built up in their faith. That's what he's talking about, walking alongside others to help them develop deep roots in Jesus. He says, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and we don't have time this morning, but... There's a great study out of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that connects the three pieces of the triune God. God the Father, who chose us before the creation of the world. He chose us. The Son that makes the Father's plan a reality, and his carnation becomes the God-man, the mediator between God and man so that we could be reconciled in the Holy Spirit that applies the righteousness of Christ to all who are in Christ. So making disciples is all about helping them develop deep roots. And the last piece is teach them to obey. If there's one of the pieces that I think it's easy to get off track on, I think it's easy to hear it this way, and teach them and teach them. So we set up classrooms and studies and all kinds of things to teach them. 
But that's not what the text says. The text says, teach them to observe. Teach them to obey all that I commanded. That means to learn and put it into action in our life. See, disciple-making must never become just some academic process. It's got to be a development process. We do community groups here at Substance for this purpose. Community groups are established as our disciple-making pathway. It's where we help each other obey and learn to obey. We, we live out what Jesus showed his disciples. We spend time together because it models what Jesus did. We discuss the message from Sunday and press in on each other's life and heart to ask the hard questions. What are you doing with this? See, it's easy to be taught something. It's not so easy to put it into action. Amen? He doesn't say teach them. He says teach them to obey. Finally, he says behold. The last part of the verse says behold. And this is an often overlooked piece, I think, of what Jesus is saying. He says behold, keep your eyes on me while you go make disciples in life. Keep your eyes on me. He says, I'll always be with you. Don't forget that I told you to do this, but I'm not going to leave you alone. This is a great assurance in this verse. Uh, Jesus never sends us where he'll not go with us. He never calls you to go make disciples and then leaves you alone and say, good luck, hope you make it. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14. He says, these things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. The Holy Spirit comes to empower us and encourage us and challenge us to go through life and make disciples. See, we carry out the Great Commission in our lives by the power of God. I can't save anybody, and I can't transform anybody. That's God's business. My job is to say yes and show up and be involved in the process as God does his work. So let me close. Some implications for us this morning. What Jesus commanded was not only for those that showed up at that time. Look at the last part of this verse. It says, he'll be with you to the very end of the age. In other words, till he returns. Till he decides, God decides to send Christ back for the final time. We're to make disciples. And so we have to show up. Disciple-making requires relationship, another implication. It means you invest in others and allow yourself to be invested in. The goal to live with the passions and priorities of Christ requires other people to come alongside and help me with that. To strive to have this character of Christ means I need to constantly be placing myself in positions where I can grow. Well, Jesus has done that in our life. 
Look around you. Who's God placed in your life that you need to point them to Christ? Invite them to discover who Jesus is and why he came with you. Look around. Who are you doing life with? Who can help me because they're a little further down the road than I am? Every one of us ought to have a Paul in our life. You read 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. You've got a Paul and a Timothy relationship. Paul was a little further down the road, and so he was discipling Timothy. And every one of us ought to have a Paul in our life. He's a little further ahead that can help us in this journey, help us be more Christ-like. Who can invest in me to help me learn more about Jesus and grow in being a disciple? And then you have to look around and say, who's the Timothy that I can help? Somebody's helping me, but I'm looking and I say, look, here's somebody that I can walk with, I can disciple, that I can help them become more like Christ and grow into being a disciple, not so that they just hang out with me, but because I can then send them out and they do it with others. Remember, Jesus did not ask you to do something he wouldn't equip you to do. Finally, if you're married, if you have kids, if you have family members, you're to disciple them. That's your job. The church's job is to help you be equipped so you can do this and come alongside, but bottom line is your job is to disciple one another. I told my kids when they were young, and even into college, my job's not to make you a sports star. My job's not to help you be successful in your career. My job's to help you know what a disciple is and equip you so you can live that way. That's my job. That's our job. Question. Is your identity firmly established in Christ today? Would you say my identity is solely in Christ? If so, are you involved in the disciple-making process? My hopes would be that as a result of looking at God's word this morning, and here's your assignment, you all find a Paul in your life. You'll find a Paul, somebody in your life to disciple you. And then you'll find, as well, at the same time, a Timothy. Now, you might feel like you don't know enough. You might feel like you're not equipped. But if your identity is in Christ, my hope is you have a Bible. And it's as simple sometimes as just opening this Bible together and saying, let's learn about Jesus. Let's do what Jesus did. And let's make disciples. That's God's will for our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Jesus, thank you for the hard words you give us sometimes. Help us this morning to uh, firmly establish our identity in you. Help us to know what it means to be a son or a daughter. Lord, uh, 
convict our hearts to find that Paul in our own life to help us be discipled who's a little further down the road. And Lord, don't let us be content with that. Will you identify a Timothy for us that we could begin to invest in? Maybe that's one of our kids. Maybe that's our neighbor. Maybe that's somebody from our community group. But oh Lord, in the days ahead, might you help us identify those and then might you allow us to show up and begin this process. Thanks that you have not left us with this command and the inability to carry it out. Go with us now in Christ's name. Amen.